Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading two short stories by Lucy Maud Montgomery. The Man on the Train and Robert Turner's Revenge. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The Man on the Train When the telegram came from William George, Grandma Sheldon was all alone with Cyrus and Louise. 
and Cyrus and Louise, aged respectively 12 and 11, were not very much good, Grandma thought, when it came to advising what was to be done. Grandma was all in a flutter, dare o' oh dare, as she said. The telegram said that Delia, William George's wife, was seriously ill down at Green Village, and William George wanted Samuel to bring Grandma down immediately. Delia had always thought that there was nobody like Grandma when it came to nursing sick folks. But Samuel and his wife were both away, had been away for two days, and intended to be away for five more. They had driven to Sinclair, twenty miles away, to visit with Mrs. Samuel's folks for a week. Dear, oh dear, what shall I do, said Grandma. Go right to Green Village on the evening train, said Cyrus briskly. Dear, oh dear, and leave you two alone, cried Grandma. Louise and I will do very well until tomorrow, said Cyrus sturdily. We will send word to Sinclair by today's mail, and father and mother will be home by tomorrow night. But I never was on the cars in my life, protested Grandma nervously. I'm, I'm so frightened to start alone. And you never know what kind of people you may meet on the train. You'll be all right, Grandma. I'll drive you to the station, get you your ticket, and put you on the train. Then you'll have nothing to do until the train gets to Green Village. I'll send a telegram to Uncle William George to meet you. I shall fall and break my neck getting off the train, said Grandma pessimistically. But she was wondering at the same time whether she had better take the black suitcase or the yellow, and whether William George would be likely to have plenty of flaxseed in the house. It was six miles to the station, and Cyrus drove Grandma over in time to catch a train that reached Green Village at nine o'clock. Dear, oh dear, said Grandma, what if William George's folks ain't there to meet me? It's all very well, Cyrus, to say that they will be there, but you don't know. And it's all very well to say not to be nervous, because everything will be all right. If you were 75 years old and had never set foot on the cars in your life, you'd be nervous too. And you can't be sure that everything will be all right. You never know what sort of people you meet on the train. I may get on the wrong train, or lose my ticket, or get carried past Green Village, or get my pocket picked. Well, no, I won't do that for not one cent will I carry with me. You shall take back home all the money you don't need to get my ticket. Then I shall be easier in my mind. Dear, oh dear, if it wasn't that Delia is so seriously ill, I wouldn't go one step. Well, you'll be all right, Grandma, assured Cyrus. He got Grandma's ticket for her, and Grandma tied it up in the corner of her handkerchief. Then the train came in, and Grandma, clinging closely to Cyrus, was put on it. Cyrus found a comfortable seat for her and shook hands cheerily. Goodbye, Grandma. Don't be frightened. Here's the weekly Argus. I got it at the store. You may like to look over it. Then Cyrus was gone, and in a moment, the station house and platform began to glide away. Dear, oh dear, what has happened to it, thought Grandma in dismay. The next moment she exclaimed aloud, Why, it's us that's moving, not it. Some of the passengers smiled pleasantly at Grandma. She was a variety of old lady, at which people do smile pleasantly. A Grandma with round, pink cheeks, soft brown eyes, and lovely snow-white curls is a nice person to look at wherever she is found. After a while, Grandma, to her amazement, discovered that she liked riding on the cars. It was not at all the disagreeable experience she'd expected it to be. Why, 
she was just as comfortable as if she were in her own rocking chair at home. And there were such a lot of people to look at, and many of the ladies had such beautiful dresses and hats. After all, the people you met on a train, thought Grandma, were surprisingly like the people you meet off it. If it had not been for wondering how she would get off at Green Village, Grandma would have enjoyed herself thoroughly. Four or five stations further on, the train halted at a lonely-looking place, consisting of the station house and a barn, surrounded by scrub woods and blueberry barrens. One passenger got on, and finding only one vacant seat in the crowded car, sat right down beside Grandma Sheldon. Grandma Sheldon held her breath while she looked him over. Was he a pickpocket? He didn't appear like one, but you can never be sure of the people you meet on the train. Grandma remembered with a sigh of thankfulness that she had no money. Besides, he seemed really very respectable and harmless. He was quietly dressed in a suit of dark blue serge with a black overcoat. He wore his hat well down on his forehead and was clean-shaven. His hair was very black, but his eyes were blue. Nice eyes, Grandma thought. She always felt great confidence in a man who had bright, open blue eyes. Grandpa Sheldon, who had died so long ago, four years after their marriage, had had bright blue eyes. To be sure, he had fair hair, reflected Grandma. It's real odd to see such black hair with such light blue eyes. Well, he's real nice looking, and I don't believe there's a mite of harm in him. The early autumn night had fallen and Grandma could not amuse herself by watching the scenery. She bethought herself of the paper Cyrus had given her and took it out of her basket. It was an old weekly, a fortnight back. On the first page was a long account of a murder case with scareheads, and into this Grandma plunged eagerly. Sweet old Grandma Sheldon, who would not have harmed a fly and hated to see even a mouse trap set, simply reveled in the newspaper accounts of murders. And the more shocking and cold-blooded they were, the more eagerly did Grandma read of them. This murder story was particularly good from Grandma's point of view. It was full of thrills. A man had been shot down, apparently in cold blood, and his supposed murderer was still at large and had eluded all the efforts of justice to capture him. His name was Mark Hartwell, and he was described as a tall, fair man with full auburn beard and curly light hair. What a shocking thing, said Grandma aloud. Her companion looked at her with a kindly amused smile. What is it? he said. Why, this murder at Charlotteville, answered Grandma, forgetting in her excitement that it was not safe to talk to people you meet on the train. It just makes my blood run cold to read about it. And to think that the man who did it is still around the country somewhere, plotting other murders, I haven't a doubt. What is the good of the police? They're dull fellows, agreed the man. But I don't envy that man his conscience, said Grandma solemnly and somewhat inconsistently, in view of her statement about the other murders that were being plotted. What must a man feel like who has the blood of a fellow creature on his hands? Depend upon it. His punishment has begun already, caught or not. That is true, said the man quietly. Such a good-looking man, too, said Grandma, looking wistfully at the murderer's picture. It doesn't seem possible that he can have killed anybody. But the paper says there isn't a doubt. He's probably guilty, said the man, but nothing is known of his provocation. 
the affair may not have been so cold-blooded as the accounts state. Those newspaper fellows never err on the side of undercoloring. I really think, said Grandma slowly, that I would like to see a murderer, just one. Whenever I say anything like that, Adelaide, Adelaide is Samuel's wife, looks at me as if she thought there was something wrong about me. And perhaps there is, but I do, all the same. When I was a little girl, there was a man in our settlement who was suspected of poisoning his wife. She died very suddenly. I used to look at him with such interest. But it wasn't satisfactory, because you can never be sure whether he was really guilty or not. I never could believe that he was, because he was such a nice man in some ways, and so good and kind to children. I don't believe a man who was bad enough to poison his wife could have any good in him. Perhaps not, agreed the man. He had absentmindedly folded Grandma's copy of the Argus and put it in his pocket. Grandma did not like to ask him for it, although she would have liked to see if there were any more murder mysteries in it. Besides, just at that moment, the conductor came round for tickets. Grandma looked in the basket for her handkerchief. It was not there. She looked on the floor and on the seat and under the seat. It was not there. She stood up and shook herself. Still no handkerchief. Dear, oh dear, exclaimed Grandma wildly. I've lost my ticket. I always knew I would. I told Cyrus I would. Well, where can it be? The conductor scowled unsympathetically. The man got up and helped Grandma search, but no ticket was to be found. You'll have to pay the money then, and something extra, said the conductor gruffly. I can't. I haven't a cent of money, wailed Grandma. I gave it all to Cyrus because I was afraid my pocket would be picked. Well, what shall I do? Don't worry. I'll make it all right, said the man. He took out his pocketbook and handed the conductor a bill. He grumblingly made the change and marched onward, while Grandma, pale with excitement and relief, sank back into her seat. I can't tell you how much I am obliged to you, sir, she said tremulously. I don't know what I should have done. Would he have put me off right here in the snow? I hardly think he would have gone to such lengths, said the man with a smile. But he's a cranky, disobliging fellow enough. I know him of old. And you must not feel overly grateful to me. I'm glad of the opportunity to help you. I had an old grandmother myself once, he added with a sigh. You must give me your name and address, of course, said Grandma. And my son, Samuel Sheldon of Midvern, will see that the money is returned to you. Well, this is a lesson to me. I'll never trust myself on a train again, and all I wish is that I was safely off this one. This fuss has worked my nerves all up again. Don't worry, Grandma. I'll see you safely off the train when we get to Green Village. Will you, though? Will you now? said Grandma eagerly. I'll be real easy in my mind then, she added with a returning smile. I feel as if I could trust you for anything. And I'm a real suspicious person, too. They had a long talk after that, or rather, Grandma talked and the man listened and smiled. She told him all about William George and Delia and their baby, and about Samuel and Adelaide and Cyrus and Louise, and the three cats and the parrot. He seemed to enjoy her accounts of them, too. When they reached Green Village Station, he gathered up Grandma's parcels and helped her tenderly off the train. Anybody here to meet Mrs. Sheldon? he asked of the station master. The latter shook his head. Don't think so. 
Haven't seen anybody here to meet anybody tonight. Dear, oh dear, said poor Grandma. This is just what I expected. They've never got Cyrus's telegram. Well, I might have known it. What shall I do? How far is it to your sons? asked the man. Only half a mile, just over the hill there. But I'll never get there alone this dark night. Of course not. But I'll go with you. The road is good. We'll do finely. But that train won't wait for you, gasped Grandma, half in protest. It doesn't matter. The Starmont Freight passes here in half an hour, and I'll go on her. Come along, Grandma. Oh, but you're good, said Grandma. Some woman is proud to have you for a son. The man did not answer. He had not answered any of the personal remarks Grandma had made to him in her conversation. They were not long in reaching William George Sheldon's house, for the village road was good and Grandma was smart on her feet. She was welcomed with eagerness and surprise. To think that there was no one to meet you, exclaimed William George. But I never dreamed of your coming by train, knowing how you set against it. Telegram? No, I got no telegram. Suppose Cyrus forgot to send it. I'm most heartily obliged to you, sir, for looking after my mother so kindly. It was a pleasure, said the man courteously. He had taken off his hat, and they saw a curious scar shaped like a large red butterfly high up on his forehead under his hair. I am delighted to have been of any assistance to her. He would not wait for supper. The next train would be in, and he must not miss it. There are people looking for me, he said with a curious smile. They will be much disappointed if they do not find me. He had gone, and the whistle of the Starmont Freight had blown before Grandma remembered that he had not given her his name and address. Dear, oh dear, how are we ever going to send that money to him, she exclaimed. And he so nice and good-hearted. Grandma worried over this for a week in the intervals of looking after Delia. One day, William George came in with a large city daily in his hands. He looked curiously at Grandma and then showed her the front-page picture of a man, clean-shaven with an oddly-shaped scar high up on his forehead. Do you ever see that man, Mother? he asked. Of course I did, said Grandma excitedly. Why, it's the man I met on the train. Who is he? What is his name? Now we'll know where to send. That is Mark Hartwell, who shot Amos Gray at Charlotteville three weeks ago, said William George quietly. Grandma looked at him blankly for a moment. It can't be, she gasped at last. That man, a murderer? I'll never believe it. It's true enough, mother. The whole story is here. He had shaved his beard and dyed his hair and came near getting Claire out of the country. They were on his trail the day he came down in the train with you and lost it because of his getting off to bring you here. His disguise was so perfect that there was little fear of his being recognized so long as he hid that scar. But it was seen in Montreal, and he was run to earth there. He's made a full confession. I don't care, cried Grandma valiantly. I'll never believe he was all bad. A man who would do what he did for a poor old woman like me and he was flying for his life too. No, no, there was good in him, even if he did kill that man, and I'm sure he must feel terrible over it. In this view, Grandma persisted. She never would say or listen to a word against Mark Hartwell, and she'd only pity for him whenever someone else condemned him. With her own trembling hands, she wrote him a letter to accompany the money Samuel sent before Hartwell was taken to the penitentiary for life. She thanked him again for his kindness to her, 
and assured him that she knew he was sorry for what he had done and that she would pray for him every night of her life. Mark Hartwell had been hard and defiant enough, but the prison officials told that he cried like a child over Grandma Sheldon's little letter. There's nobody all bad, says Grandma when she relates the story. I used to believe a murderer must be, but I know better now. I think of that poor man often and often. He was so kind and gentle to me, he must have been a good boy once. I write him a letter every Christmas and I send him tracts and papers. He's my own little charity. But I've never been in the cars since and I never will be again. You can never tell what will happen to you or what sort of people you meet if you trust yourself on a train. Robert Turner's Revenge When Robert Turner came to the green, ferny triangle where the station road forked to the right and left under the birches, he hesitated as to which direction he would take. The left led out to the old Turner homestead, where he had spent his boyhood and where his cousin still lived. The right led down to the cove shore where the Jameson property was situated. Since he had stopped off at Chiswick for the purpose of looking this property over before foreclosing the mortgage on it, he concluded that he might as well take the Cove Road. He could go around by the shore afterward. He had not forgotten the way even in forty years. And so on, up through the old spruce wood in Alec Martin's field, if the spruces were still there and the field still Alec Martin's, to his cousin's place. He would just about have time to make the round before the early country supper hour. Then a brief visit with Tom. Tom had always been a good sort of fellow, although woefully dull and slow-going, and the evening express from Montreal. He swung with a business-like stride into the Cove Road. As he went on, however, the stride insensibly slackened into an unaccustomed saunter. How well he remembered that old road, although it was forty years since he had last traversed it. A set-lipped boy of fifteen, cast on the world by the indifference of an uncle. The years had made surprisingly little difference in it, or in the surrounding scenery. True, the hills and fields and lanes seemed lower and smaller and narrower than he remembered them. There were some new houses along the road, and the belt of woods along the back of the farms had become thinner in most places, but that was all. He had no difficulty in picking out the old familiar spots. There was the big cherry orchard on the Milligan Place, which had been so famous in his boyhood. It was snow-white with blossoms, as if the trees were possessed of eternal youth. They had been in blossom the last time he had seen them. While time had not stood still with him, as it had with Luke Milligan's cherry orchard, he reflected grimly. His springtime had long gone by. The few people he met on the road looked at him curiously, for strangers were not commonplace in Chiswick. He recognized some of the older among them, but none of them knew him. He had been an awkward, long-limbed lad with fresh boyish colour and crisp black curls when he had left Chiswick. He returned to it a somewhat portly figure of a man with close-cropped grizzled hair and a face that looked as if it might be carved out of granite, so immobile and unyielding it was. The face of a man who never faltered or wavered, who stuck at nothing that might advance his plans and purposes, a face known and dreaded in the business world where he reigned master. It was a cold, hard, selfish face, but the face of a boy of forty years ago had been neither cold 
nor hard, nor selfish. Presently the homesteads and orchard lands grew fewer and then ceased altogether. The fields were long and low-laying, sloping down to the misty rim of blue sea. A turn of the road brought him in sudden sight of the cove, and there below him was the old Jameson homestead, built almost within wave-lap of the pebbly shore, and shut away into a lonely grey world of its own by the sea and sands and those long slopes of tenantless fields. He paused at the sagging gate that opened into the long, deep-rutted lane, and folding his arms on it, looked earnestly and scrutinizingly over the buildings. They were grey and faded, lacking the prosperous appearance that had characterized them once. There was an air of failure about the whole place, as if the very land had become disheartened and discouraged. Long ago, Neil Jameson, Sr., had been a well-to-do man. The Big Cove farm had been one of the best in Chiswick then. As for Neil Jameson, Jr., Robert Turner's face always grew somewhat grimmer when he recalled him. The one person, boy and man, whom he had really hated in the world. They had been enemies from childhood, and once in a bout of wrestling at the Chiswick School, Neil had thrown him by an unfair trick and taunted him continually thereafter on his defeat. Robert had made a compact with himself that some day he would pay Neil Jameson back. He had not forgotten it. He never forgot such things. But he had never seen or heard of Neil Jameson after leaving Chiswick. He might have been dead for anything Robert Turner knew. Then when John Kesley failed and his effects turned over to his creditors, of whom Robert Turner was the chief, a mortgage on the Cove Farm at Chiswick, owned by Neil Jameson, had been found among his assets. Inquiry revealed the fact that Neil Jameson was dead and the farm was run by his widow. Turner felt a pang of disappointment. What satisfaction was there in wreaking revenge on a dead man? At least his wife and children would suffer. That debt of his to Jameson for an ill-won victory and many a snare must be paid in full if not to him, why then to his heirs? His lawyers reported that Mrs. Jameson was two years behind with her interest. Turner instructed them to foreclose the mortgage promptly. Then he took it into his head to revisit Chiswick and have a good look at the Cove Farm and other places he knew so well. He had a notion that it might be a decent place to spend a summer month or two in. His wife went to seaside and mountain resorts, but he liked something quieter. There was good fishing at the cove and in Chiswick Pond, as he remembered. If he liked the farm as well as his memory promised him he would do, he would bid it in himself. It would make Neil Jameson turn in his grave if the penniless lad he had jeered at came into the possession of his old ancestral property that had been owned by Jameson for over 100 years. There was a flavor in such revenge that pleased Robert Turner. He smiled one of his occasional grim smiles over it. When Robert Turner smiled, whether prophets of the business sky foretold squalls. Presently, he opened the gate and went through. Halfway down the lane, forked, one branch going over to the house, the other slanting across the field to the cove. Turner took the latter and soon found himself on the grey shore where the waves were tumbling in creamy foam just as he remembered them long ago. Nothing about the old cove had changed. He walked around a knobby headland, weather-worn with the wind and spray of years, 
which cut him off from sight of the Jameson house, and sat down on a rock. He thought himself alone and was annoyed to find a boy sitting on the opposite ledge with a book on his knee. The lad lifted his eyes and looked Turner over with a clear, direct gaze. He was about twelve years old, tall for his age, slight, with a delicate, clear-cut face, a face that was oddly familiar to Turner, although he was sure he had never seen it before. The boy had oval cheeks, finely tinted with color, big, shy blue eyes quilled about with long black lashes, and silvery golden hair laying over his head in soft ringlets like a girl's. What girls? Something far back in Robert Turner's dreamlike boyhood seemed to call to him, like a note of a forgotten melody, sweet yet stirring like a pain. The more he looked at the boy, the stronger the impression of a resemblance grew in every feature but the mouth. That was alien to his recollection of the face, yet there was something about it, when taken by itself, that seemed oddly familiar also. Yes, and unpleasantly familiar. Although the mouth was a good one, finely cut and possessing more firmness than was found in all the other features put together. It's a good place for reading, Sonny, isn't it? he inquired, more genially than he had spoken to a child for years. In fact, having no children of his own, he so seldom spoke to a child that his voice and manner when he did so were generally awkward and rusty. The boy nodded a quick little nod. Somehow Turner had expected that nod and the glimmer of a smile that accompanied it. What book are you reading? he asked. The boy held it out. It was an old Robinson Crusoe, that classic of boyhood. It's splendid, he said. Billy Martin lent it to me and I have to finish it today because Ned Josephs is to have it next. And he's in a hurry for it. It's a good while since I read Robinson Crusoe, said Turner reflectively. When I did, it was on this very shore, a little further along, below the Miller place. There was a Martin and a Joseph in the partnership then, too. The fathers, I dare say, of Billy and Ned. What is your name, my boy? Paul Jameson, sir. The name was a shock to Turner. This boy, a Jameson. Neil Jameson's son. Why, yes, he had Neil's mouth. Strange he had nothing else in common with the black-browed, black-haired Jamesons. What business had a Jameson with those blue eyes and silvery golden curls? It was a flagrant forgery on nature's part to fashion such things and label them Jameson by a mouth. Hated Neil Jameson's son. Robert Turner's face grew so grey and hard that the boy involuntarily glanced upward to see if a cloud had crossed the sun. Your father was Neil Jameson, I suppose. Turner said abruptly. Paul nodded. Yes, but he's dead. He's been dead for eight years. I don't remember him. Have you any brothers or sisters? I have a little sister, a year younger than I am. The other four are dead. They died long ago. I'm the only boy mother had. Oh, I do so wish I was bigger and older. If I was, I could do something to save the place. I'm sure I could. It is breaking mother's heart to have to leave it. So she has to leave it, has she? said Turner grimly, with the old hatred stirring in his heart. Yes, there's a mortgage on it and we are to be sold out very soon, so the lawyers told us. Mother has tried so hard to make the farm pay, but she couldn't. I could, if I was bigger. I know I could. If they would only wait a few years. But there's no use hoping for that. Mother cries all the time about it. 
She's lived at the Cove Farm for over 30 years and she says she can't live away from it now. Elsie, that's my sister, and I do all we can to cheer her up, but we can't do much. Or if I was only a man. The lad shut his lips together, how much his mouth was like his father's, and looked seaward with troubled blue eyes. Turner smiled another grim smile. Oh, Neil Jameson, your old score was being paid now. Yet something embittered the sweetness of revenge. That boy's face. He could not hate it as he had accustomed himself to hate the memory of Neil Jameson and all connected with him. What was your mother's name before she married your father? He demanded abruptly. Lisbeth Miller, answered the boy, still frowning seaward over his secret thoughts. Turner started again. Lisbeth Miller. He might have known it. What woman in the world save Lisbeth Miller could have given her son those eyes and curls? So Lisbeth had married Neil Jameson, little Lisbeth Miller, his schoolboy sweetheart. He had forgotten her, or thought he had. Certainly he had not thought of her for years, but the memory of her came back now with a rush. Little Lisbeth, pretty little Lisbeth, merry little Lisbeth. How clearly he remembered her. The old Miller place had adjoined his uncle's farm. Lisbeth and he had played together from babyhood, how he had worshipped her. When they were six years old, they had solemnly promised to marry each other when they grew up, and Lisbeth had let him kiss her as earnest of their compact, made under a bloom-white apple tree in the Miller orchard. Yet she would always blush furiously and deny it ever afterwards, and made her angry to be reminded of it. He saw himself going to school, carrying her books for her, the envy of all the boys. He remembered how he had fought Tony Joseph because Tony had the presumption to bring her spice apples. He had thrashed him too, so soundly that from that time forth none of the schoolboys presumed to rival him in Lisbeth's affections, roguish little Lisbeth, who grew prettier and saucier every year. He recalled the keen competition of the old days when to be head of the class seemed the highest honour within mortal reach and was striven after with might and main. He'd seldom attained to it because he would never go up past Lisbeth. If she missed a word, he, Robert, missed it too, no matter how well he knew it. It was sweet to be thought a dunce for her dear sake. It was all the reward he asked to see her holding her place at the head of the class, her cheeks flushed pink and her eyes starry with her pride of position. And how sweetly she would lecture him on the way home from school about learning his spellings better, and wind up her sermon with the frank avowal, uttered with deliciously downcast lids, that she liked him better than any of the other boys after all, even if he couldn't spell as well as they could. Nothing of success that he had won since had ever thrilled him as that admission of little Lisbeth's. She had been such a sympathetic little sweetheart too, never weary of listening to his dreams and ambitions, his plans for the future. She had always assured him that she knew he would succeed. Well, he had succeeded, and now one of the uses he was going to make of his success was to turn Lisbeth and her children out of the home by way of squaring matters with a dead man. Lisbeth had been away from home on a long visit to an aunt when he left Chiswick. She was growing up and the childish intimacy was fading. Perhaps under other circumstances it might have ripened into fruit, but he had gone away and forgotten her. The world had claimed him. He had lost all active remembrance of Lisbeth, and, before this late return to Chiswick, he had not even known if she were living. 
and she was Neil Jameson's widow. He was silent for a long time while the waves purred about the base of the big red sandstone rock, and the boy returned to his Caruso. Finally, Robert Turner roused himself from his reverie. I used to know your mother long ago when she was a little girl, he said. I wonder if she remembers me. Ask her when you go home if she remembers Bobby Turner. Won't you come up to the house and see her, sir? Asked Paul politely. Mother is always glad to see her old friends. No, I haven't time today. Robert Turner was not going to tell Neil Jameson's son that he did not care to look for the little Lisbeth of long ago in Neil Jameson's widow. The name spoiled her for him, just as the Jameson mouth spoiled her son for him. But you may tell her something else. The mortgage will not be foreclosed. I was the power behind the lawyers, but I did not know that the present owner of the Cove Farm was my little playmate, Lisbeth Miller. You and she shall have all the time you want. Tell her Bobby Turner does this in return for what she gave him under the big sweeting apple tree on her sixth birthday. I think she will remember and understand. As for you, Paul, be a good boy and good to your mother. I hope you'll succeed in your ambition of making the farm pay when you're old enough to take it in hand. At any rate, you'll not be disturbed in your possession of it. Oh, sir. Oh, sir, stammered Paul, in an agony of embarrassed gratitude and delight. Oh, it seems too good to be true. Do you really mean that we're not to be sold out? Or won't you come and tell Mother yourself? She'll be so happy, so grateful. Do come and let her thank you. Not today. I haven't time. Give her my message, that's all. There, run. The sooner she gets the news, the better. Turner watched the boy as he bounded away until the headland hid him from sight. There goes my revenge, and a fine bit of property eminently suited for a summer residence. All for a bit of old, rusty sentiment, he said with a shrug. I didn't suppose I was capable of such a mood, but then, little Lisbeth. There never was a sweeter girl. I'm glad I didn't go with the boy to see her. She's an old woman now, and Neil Jameson's widow. I prefer to keep my old memories of her undisturbed, little Lisbeth of the silvery golden curls and the roguish blue eyes. Little Lisbeth of the old time. I'm glad to be able to have done you the small service of securing your home to you. It's my thanks to you for the friendship and affection you gave my lonely boyhood. I tribute to the memory of my first sweetheart. He walked away with a smile, whose amusement presently softened to an expression that would have amazed his business cronies. Later on, he hummed the air of an old love song as he climbed the steep spruce road to Tom's. Good night. <laughs>